0: Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. I'm going to ask you this morning if you would grab your Bibles once more and turn to the book of Psalms. Once again, Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Uh, we are in part two. Of a, uh, of a two-part message. Actually, I'll just be honest because we're in church, right? It wasn't originally a two-part message. I just got too long-winded to finish it all in one. So, um, But anyway, we're in Psalm 27, and we're dealing with the subject of an awe of God. If you were not here last week or you weren't able to catch, uh, catch the sermon this week, make sure you go back and, uh, and hear that. I will kind of review the points, but I won't uh, re-preach them this morning. But we have been, um, for, the, for the summer, at least the last half of the summer, it's going to carry us through till Labor Day. We've been looking at different psalms, um, different hymns, different poems that we find in the holy hymnal. Basically, that's a, that's a nickname for the book of Psalms because the psalms are a... Uh, are a book of poems, a book of songs that were recited as worship hymns uh, in temple worship. Most of them, a good number of them, are written by David, who later became king of Israel. The one we're going to be looking at today is written by David. Some of the others are written by uh, some other people as well. But all of them were adopted as, uh, as, as, as scriptures to be memorized, uh, poems to be remembered that remind us of the greatness and the goodness and the awesomeness and the majesty of our God. And we serve a good God, don't we? Now that's, that's a little weak, but you know, that's okay. We're in the middle of, you know, it's, it's dog days of the summer, uh, you know, pandemic, it's an election year, so it's like, God is good. Let's try this again. God is still awesome, right? Amen. Right? Okay, good. Even in the midst of all that stuff, God is still, God is still awesome, the question that we opened with last week is what puts you in a state of awe? What is it that has happened in your life? What are, there's, we all have moments. We all have things in our life that put us in a place where we say, man, I don't know if I'll ever look at life the same way again. Or it just kind of takes your breath away and you stand there dumbfounded at a couple of things. Number one, how great is my life at this moment? Or number two, how small am I and how big is everything else? There are moments and there are things that hold us or put us in a state of awe. And usually that state of awe is reminding us that we're not the center of the universe. Well, guess what? There's a book that for centuries has been telling us that, that we're not the center of the universe. Matter of fact, that the center of the universe is not even the sun, but the center of the universe is God. He's the one who spoke all this into existence. He's the one who framed everything together. He's the one who's holding it all together and spun it into motion. And he knows you. He knows me. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He catches all of our tears in a bottle. He knows every grain of sand on every ocean, on every planet. He knows every star in the sky. That's our God. That's the one that we worship. And here's the beautiful thing about our God, as big as he is. He cares enough to have a personal, intimate relationship with us, as a heavenly father would. One who knows us, one who cares for us, one who watches over us, and one who has our attention, hopefully. Um, we've been talking about it during the dog days of the soul. You know, in the dog days of the summer when it's really hot, we just want something that'll cool us off, something that'll give us relief, you know, diving into a swimming pool, although this year, Diving into a swimming pool wasn't all, it, you know, you couldn't do it. You know, if you dove into a swimming pool right now, you could hurt yourself because they're all dried out, right? Um, here's how desperate things got at Holmes Manor this summer, okay? We, I, t- I mentioned a couple of weeks, we got some sod laid in our backyard and everything because we were doing some big time work in our backyard, so we laid some sod. I don't know why we chose to lay it in July and August, but that's what we did. So now you're having to water that sucker like crazy. Well, I send the girls out to water the grass a couple of times. The grass doesn't get watered. Guess what gets watered? the girls, right? I look out there and they got the hose and they're hosing each other off and everything and they're the ones trying to, just trying to like, you know, just trying to cool off. We'll look for anything that will give us relief in the dog days and in the dog day seasons of the soul and we all go through them no matter how spiritually mature and spiritually awesome we may try to project ourselves to be, every one of us are susceptible to the seasons of dryness in the soul. Some of the greatest preachers that have ever lived, D.L. Moody and C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, was probably the one who wrote on it the most. Spurgeon was deeply depressed most of his ministry, and he wrote about the dryness, the, the, this, this dark dog days that he would go through. And I'll tell you what, personally, just out of transparency, it's wonderful to be able to go to guys like that when I go through my own, because we all go through them. The enemy would like us to believe that if we're not always on the mountaintop, that God has failed us in some way. But sometimes God has to take us through the valley for us to enjoy and to, and to, and to really respect the mountaintop's moments. And it's also in the valley sometimes that that's the only place that we will look with our stubborn nature, we'll look at the goodness of God, and we'll see it. See, none of this is in the notes either, so just, just, just go ahead and settle in. We're going to be here probably for a while today. The truth is that all of us are, awestruck, or are, are wired by God, our creator, to be awestruck by him. And what I mean by that is all of us have been hardwired by God to only be fulfilled by him, meaning that there is a hole inside each, each one of us. The French philosopher Blaise Pascal said this years ago. That there's a God-shaped vacuum or hole inside each one of us, and only God can fill that. I've used this illustration before, kind of like, kind of like those, remember those octagonal, you know, shaped toys that kids, that babies would play with, and you had, a, you had a circle, and it would only fit in the circle hole, and you had a square, and it would only fit in the square hole? God is like that. God has left inside of each one of us, after our fall, there is a void inside of us that only God can fill. And you can try to fill it with anything you want. And you may be able to force something through that, but it's not going to satisfy completely, and it's not gonna satisfy eternally. And that's the heart behind the Psalms. The Psalms remind us, every time we get in them, that God is the one who satisfies. God is the one who brings us joy and peace in our lives. And when we go through those seasons when our eyes have wandered from God to other things, our sense of awe of God begins to kind of just deteriorate, and then we wonder why we're kind of left feeling empty, kind of left feeling like, I don't know what's going on right now. So we've been hardwired with a craving to only be awestruck by God. So the question is, when was the last time that you were struck by your creator, God? There have been moments in my life when I, I realized that at the birth of both of my children, Man, you, you don't go through something like that. Not, and I say go through, not like Stacy went through, but I mean, you know, it was an experience for me too, but, you know, not near the experience it was for my wife. But going through seeing the, the birth of your children, that's an awe-striking moment. For me, when I see the ocean or when I look up into the stars and just begin to ponder just how big God is and how little I really am, that's an awe-striking moment as well. When was the last time that you were awestruck by God? You see, we've lost our, our sense of awe in God, and there's a couple of things that will pull us away from that. One is that we choose to be, we just choose to be in awe of something else, something of lesser value and lesser strength, because the Bible tells us that everything here on this earth is temporary. It's not going to last forever, yet we choose to become so fascinated with the temporary things, don't we? With money, with power, with, with people. We can become so fascinated with all of those things. And they always fade away and they always leave us disappointed. If they have not disappointed you yet, they will eventually trust God on that one. So we we end up losing our sense of awe in God because we choose to just give our passion and our our zeal and our excitement and our sense of wonder to lesser things that won't, in the end, won't deliver. We've also fixed our eyes on this earthly plane and we've neglected the promises that God has given us. Maybe you're not looking at all the good things of, of the world and trusting them. Maybe you're looking at all the bad things looking at all the bad things and being fearful and being anxious about all of those things will also cause us to lose our sense of awe in God because it will help it will cause us to believe a lie that Satan wants us to believe is that God is not in control when in actuality he is. God is on the throne. There's only been one person who's occupied that throne for all of eternity. His name is God and his son, Jesus Christ. Or because we've chosen Sometimes we lose our sense of awe and wonder in God because we just get too awestruck by ourselves. And you may say, no, I'm a humble person. I'm the most humble person there is. There's nothing awesome about me except for the fact that you just said you're the most humble person in the world. Or you've bought the lie and said, no, I don't measure up. See, there's, there's humility and then there's, then there's sinful depression, I guess you could say. When you look at the promises of God and you don't take them for what they are. When God says you are chosen, you are holy, you are a royal priesthood, and you don't walk in the confidence of who you are in Christ. See, we can lose our sense of awe and wonder because we've come so down and believe the lies of the enemy that you're not worth it, but you are. The cross screams, You're worth it. You're worth it. So we lose our our sense of awe and wonder in God because we get too, I guess, wrapped up in ourselves. And that's the definition of pride. And here's what, I love what Dr. David Platt said, and I'll remind you of this, and then we'll move into the, into the, the, the new content for the, the message today. He says, God and the Bible are both clear affronts to all of our human pride. Because it declares that everything in the universe and everything in our lives revolves around God. Your life does not revolve around you. He has designed it that way for our good. My life doesn't revolve around me. Your life doesn't revolve around me. My life doesn't revolve around you. Your life doesn't revolve around me. Our lives all together as the church of Jesus Christ, as humanity, as created beings, revolve around God. And the earth we stand on revolves around God too. It all revolves around him. And that's for our good because it puts us in a place of awe and wonder and worship to him. And that's what we've gathered to do today, but it's not just something we do on Sunday from 10.30 to whenever I I finally stop talking. It's not just something we do then, it's something that we do all the time. Worship for the believer should be like the air that we breathe. We breathe in his goodness and we exhale worship of him. You see, I think the reason that we find ourselves too much in those dog days of the soul is because we've lost our sense of awe and wonder. David is the one who, even though David went through, he he had some times when he turned his back on God and he kind of, I mean, he forgot that God was always watching, okay? And I think he had to have forgotten because that thing with Bathsheba would have never happened if he remembered that God was watching, okay? Can I get a witness there? So David, the man after God's own heart, the one we're gonna look at and start talking and saying good things about today, remember that he also went through those dog days where he thought that God wasn't there and he thought he could get away with some stuff, but he also went through seasons where he thought that God wasn't there and he'd been abandoned. This was not one of those moments. It probably should have been one of those moments, but it wasn't. See, David was on the run from King Saul. We went through the full background of it last week, so I won't belabor the point, but David had been anointed as as to be the next king of Israel, and Saul was angry about that because he had wanted his family line to be established, and David's best friend, Jonathan, who was Saul's son, should have been the next king of Israel, but God said, because Saul had turned his back on God, God was going to replace Saul's family line with David, and then he would start a new royal line. So Saul obviously was a little bit mad at David for that, and then you add into the fact that David, after being anointed as the next king, and he was the king-in-waiting, he came and he killed Goliath, and he didn't even use Saul's armor to do it, and, and, and David is like this little boy at that point with a slingshot, and he kills, he kills Goliath and gives God all the glory for that. And then the fact that as David becomes a soldier, he began to kill his tens of thousands and Saul only killed his thousands. Everybody loved David. He's trending on Twitter. He's like the star of TikTok and all of this stuff. And here's Saul over here like, hey, I'm still the king, look at me. And so Saul thought the only thing that I can do is I still control the greatest army in the world. And so one night he calls David He calls David in to play the heart for him so he can go to sleep and he gets mad and in a jealous rage he throws this javelin or this spear at David and he misses David. And David starts running out and he just keeps on running into hiding like the fugitive. And Saul spends the next like series of months and almost up to a year searching for David in hiding. And as David is in hiding is when we believe, when scholars believe that he wrote this psalm. And as we look at Psalm chapter 27, beginning in verse number one, I'm going to read just a selection of verses out of here because we're going to be focusing on verses 7 through 14 this morning very closely. But he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Imagine this. He's writing this in the middle of the night as soldiers are walking around him, looking for him to take his life or to bring him back to the king. And he says, the Lord in my darkness is my light. The Lord, in this moment of being hunted and where I am unsafe, is my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold. Even though I'm out here in the middle of the wilderness looking for a place to hide, I hide in God. He's the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. If I'm the only one fighting this war, if I'm on God's side, I'm in the majority I have asked one thing from the Lord, and this is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I want his presence. Gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple, for he will conceal me in his shelter in the day of adversity. He will hide me under the cover of his tent, and he will set me high on a rock. Then my head will be high above my enemies around me. I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and I will make music to the Lord. Lord, hear my voice when I call, and this is a prayer that we can all utter. Be gracious to me and answer me. My heart says this is about you. Seek his face. Lord, I will seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. Even if my father and my mother abandon me, the Lord still cares for me. Because of my adversaries, show me your way, Lord. Lead me on a level path. Do not give me over to the will of my foes. For false witnesses will rise up against me, breathing violence. I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will speak this morning to our hearts through your word. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. In a moment when David should have probably been wondering, God, what are you doing? I thought you anointed me as king. I thought I was supposed to be the next king. Now, why is the king that's sitting there now hunting me down with his best forces that he can find? Why is he hunting me down? Why am I on the run? Why is he not the one that's on the run, God? In a moment when he should probably be questioning God, where is he at? He's in a moment of utter confidence in God, of utter trust in God, and in a place of worship, I don't know about you, but when I feel like God's necessarily not working my life the way I I feel like he should, it's not a time when I really feel like I should worship him. Yet the Bible says time and time and time and time again, it is in those dry seasons, it is in those moments of questioning that our worship not only glorifies God, but it also encourages our spirit. David was coming from four places, four truths that he believed within the core of his soul that recalibrated his vision and understanding of God who God is, what he's capable of, and also what he is doing, regardless of what it looks like, what he is currently doing in David's life. And his things that he is doing in our life today too. We talked about two of them last week. And very quickly, let me give you those. We have to understand that his salvation of us inspires our awe. If we are to be in awe of an awesome God, what makes him so awesome? What makes him so wonderful? And the first thing is his salvation. The fact that he would offer salvation to those of us who do not deserve it is an awe-inspiring truth. And you know what the reason I think that we're not in awe of his salvation so much for? It's because we kind of get to the point, let's be honest, we kind of get to the point where we think we deserve it, don't we? Because what is human nature? When we're confronted with our sin, what is our nature to do? To justify it, right? We don't want to take responsibility for what we've done. We don't want to own up to it. This is why there's a big mountain that stands in the way sometimes of the free gift of salvation because we just can't overcome admitting that we are sinners in need of a savior. We're constantly trying to make everybody believe that I'm perfect and that I'm worthy of all of this goodness. But the truth is, the Bible tells us, I'm only worthy of death. I'm only worthy in my sin of separation from God. It is his goodness that he has offered salvation. See, he didn't make me lost, I made myself lost. Adam and Eve did that for me. But God in his mercy and his grace has restored that, and that is a miracle. See, when we come face to face with the true horror of our sin and what it costs us and what it's done, that's when we realize the true miracle of God's saving grace. So David is still inspired. He's saying, look, I'm still the chosen king. I may be on the run right now, but it's just a matter of time. It was a matter of time before God sent Samuel to anoint me as the king. It's a matter of time before I'm sitting on that throne and crowned as the second king of Israel. It's God's timing, it's God's way. And for us, what we have to realize is, as children of God, if you are saved, he's got you in the palm of your hand. You are secure in his salvation. You are in the stronghold, and there is no one that we have to fear. And we live in a state of fear all the time. What's gonna happen if this happens or what's gonna happen if this? I'll tell you what's gonna happen. Here's the main thing. And I'm not saying that everything's, everything is peaches and roses all the time because sometimes we go through difficulty. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the Beatitudes. But here's what I am saying. God will still be on his throne. And if you are a child of God, you are still his kid. You are still a prince or a princess. And God takes care of his kids. That's what the salvation and the light means. It's a salvation that lights our darkness, it overcomes our enemies, it gives us protection, and also it's a a salvation that is personal. And here's why many of us struggle with this. David said the Lord is my light and my salvation. We talk about Jesus as the personal Lord and Savior. Salvation must be a personal experience. David had had personal experiences with the goodness and the protection of God. He had slain lions, he had slain bears out there, and he knew that it was God's hand that did that and God's strength. When we are struggling with a sense of awe and wonder of God, go back to those moments when God just blew you away. Remember those, don't walk away from those. We normally, in our human nature, we like to keep a long laundry list of the dirty stuff, of the disappointments, of the hardships. It's not our human nature to keep a long list of the good stuff. It's not. So, what we need to learn to do is start flipping those lists. So, it's also his presence we looked at last week. His presence will command our awe. Anytime in scripture you see God show up in the Old Testament, when God showed up to Adam and Eve, when God showed up to Moses, when God showed up to Isaiah, every time God showed up, something happened to every human being that he showed up to. They were awestruck. They were dumb. They could not speak. Isaiah said, I couldn't speak until the angel finally looked at me and said, Speak, man. You're going to sit there and just blah, 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 blah the whole time? Speak. In his presence, we find a sense of awe and wonder. And what David said in verse number four he says, I've asked this one thing of the Lord, that I would spend my life dwelling in the house of the Lord. And what he means by that is probably at that very moment, dude, I'd like to be somewhere safe. While he's out there on the run, he's probably thinking, you know, I'd like to be in God's house right now. It'd be kind of nice. It seems, seems kind of safe to me. But he's also speaking of a spiritual sense. Keep my spirit focused on where I actually am dwelling, that no matter where I am, there he is as well. The Holy Spirit that lives inside of us today means that no matter where we are, if we're in the middle of a valley, if we're on the mountaintop, the spirit of the Lord is with us. We are dwelling in him. And there's peace that comes from dwelling in God and there's a confidence and there is a sense of wonder and awe as we dwell in him. See, a lot of times what we do when we get into hardship and we get into trouble, what we start praying for is deliverance. What David was praying for was presence. That's what God promises us when we get into hardship. He doesn't promise us immediate deliverance. He does promise that one day he will establish victory and all of the foes will be vanquished. But in the meantime, he still gives us something far better than anything else, his presence. He'll never leave you, never forsake you, never abandon you. And this is what David is falling upon. He's falling upon that understanding, he is with me. He says in verse number six, he says, my head will be high above my enemies around me because it's not only a presence that our soul longs for, it's a presence that we take refuge in and it ensures our victory. And it's also a presence that is always attentive upon us, right? Nothing happens that God doesn't know about. You're precious in the eyes of God. You're precious in the sight of God. You're not just a number. You're not just a social security card or uh, an ID badge to heaven. He knows your name. He knows your weight. That might not be a, a very affirming or a very comforting thought to you right now. But he knows everything about you. He's attentive. And there's not one second of the day that passes that he doesn't know about you. If his eye is on the sparrow, as the old song says, we can know that he watches us. So this morning, as we, as we finish up, also tied into the dwelling place of God in verse number four, look at the last half of verse number four. It says, it says this, it says, that I will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And that's the third thing that we see this morning, is that his beauty captivates our awe. His beauty captivates our all. It's a beauty that cannot be denied. God is beautiful, and that's kinda of hard to think about sometimes. Many of us don't think about God in ways of attractiveness or physical features or something like that, but he says in verse number four, I wanna dwell in the house of the Lord, and here's what I wanna do while I'm there. I don't wanna haul up in my mansion and you know just kick back and enjoy some, enjoy some takeout from the marriage supper of the Lamb. What I wanna do is I wanna gaze upon the beauty of my God. That's what I want to spend eternity doing. I want to gaze upon the beauty of my Lord. And this is something that I don't think we make a big enough deal as believers, is that God is beautiful. That sounds a little odd, especially in light of his awesomeness, his majesty, his fearfulness, all of those things to say also that God is so pretty. That sounds weird to say that, right? But look at your neighbor right now, and just, just, let's just embrace the awkwardness. God is so pretty. Just, just do that. Just God is so beautiful. We also hear that line, say, well, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and absolutely, that is true. Beauty sometimes, and what we've come to accept in our culture, that beauty is kind of a thing that is based upon our preferences and our likes. For instance, I can look at something and say, man, that's really pretty, or that's really cool, and somebody beside me may say, man, that's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. Not talking about a person, mind you, but you know, an object. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. You'll see some couples together, and you're like, what in the world did she think about him? How in the world are those two people together? There's no law in the land that should allow those two people to be together. I don't understand it. It's kind of what people think when they see me and my wife. i married way above my station, I really did. (laughs) Y'all can ask me later what I did to have to do that, okay, right? Beauty's in the behind, and the truth is that beauty, yes and no, it is in the eye of the beholder, but it's also a very objective thing too. You see, the ability to perceive beauty doesn't, have, doesn't involve a kind of taste which can be either cultivated or trained or it can be distorted or diluted. You see, there are some things that you have to have an educated eye for. You have to be educated and disciplined to really appreciate. For instance, a trained musician will notice subtle tones and pitch and those types of things that most people with the untrained ear don't notice. Y'all remember the show American Idol? Is it still on? It's still there, it's been through like 155 seasons or something like that now. All right, so, or or The Voice, or any of these singing shows, right? You've got these trained musicians that are sitting there judging them, and what do they, sometimes I'll listen to a performance, and I'm like, man, that was beautiful, that was fantastic, and the judges will turn around and be like, you know, it was a little bit pitchy. Uh, You know, you were a little off on tone, and I'm thinking, I can't, I didn't hear that, because I'm not as trained of a musician as they are. They can hear those subtle tones that are not right, or tones that are, that make it amazing. Or an artist that'll look at a sunset and notice hues and colors that they can't replicate on their palette, and they realize that God is like this, this, the best artist that you can possibly find. You see, because some beauty is only perceptible to the trained and to the disciplined eye, and that's the beauty of God. God becomes more beautiful as we gaze upon him. God becomes more beautiful to us the more we get to know him, and the more disciplined in him we become to get. But you see, we can also be trained to think that the ugly things are beautiful. When we walk too much in the brokenness of, of sin and the brokenness of our world, this is why you can have people who are victims of abuse that live self, uh, self-endangering lives even after they've, they've broken free of that abuse because they've come to appreciate that which is ugly as beautiful. Some of you may know too well what I'm talking about. But you see, we can become trained to appreciate and to call the ugly things beautiful, too. But beauty, by itself, however, also has value, too. Because there are some things that are just beautiful whether you appreciate it or not. There's just some things that are just beautiful whether you appreciate it or not. Because they have intrinsic beauty, and that is the beauty of God. That's the beauty of the cross. To some, it's an offense. To others, it's beautiful. But to God, it's a symbol of victory. And it is a symbol of welcoming and it is a symbol of forgiveness. And to the believer, it becomes more beautiful each and every day. This is why the Apostle Paul says, I will glory only in the cross of Christ. But what we do is spend our times, most of our time glorying over other things. My money, my business, my kids, which is a wonderful thing. But in the proper perspective of the most beautiful thing in our lives, being God. How do you feel about God's beauty? And let me ask you this, consider this. How do I feel about God's beauty right now? Has God captivated me by his beauty? What has God done? What God, how has God captured my attention and my awe? I'm talking about the beauty that just takes your breath away. Like man, isn't God good? Many of you may be struggling with agreeing with David that God is beautiful. He may not seem very beautiful right now because you've developed a taste maybe for something of less beauty because you haven't garnered that taste for the beauty of God, or it doesn't change the fact here that he is beautiful. We may not call him beautiful, but it doesn't change the fact that he is. All creation calls him beautiful. The trees cry out his praise, the flowers exist to display his glory. All of creation bows down to the beauty of the creator. We're the only ones given the choice to notice and to truly and honestly appreciate his beauty and his value. He's so beautiful that it will give life to your soul, breath to your lungs, and it'll put praise on your lips. Why? Because it's a beauty that our soul longs for. He says, my heart says this about you, seek his face in verse number nine. Or in verse number eight, I'm sorry. He says, Lord, my heart says this about you, seek his face. While we may not be wanting to, our souls say, seek God. Seek God. In our dark days, that's what our soul is calling out to us. Seek his face. It's the cry of the human heart. It's the cry of the spirit. Seek his face. And I think this is why Psalm 46 tells us to be still and know that he is God. Because sometimes we have to get in the stillness and we have to just push everything out to finally hear the still, small voice voice of God that says, hey, I'm right here. Just look at me. Look at my face. You see, he's beautiful, but then lastly, and we'll close out this morning, is that he is good. His beauty inspires our awe, but his goodness will then continue and it will feed our awe. The fact that God is good, see, if it's not enough in the dog days of the soul that the Lord will save us, that He is a saving grace, if it's not enough that He's always there and that His presence is always around us, that He's never leaving us and never forsaking us, and if it's not enough that He is the most beautiful thing that we can view in our lives, the next thing we see is that He's good. He's good. God is good. Look at your neighbor. You already said God's pretty. Now look at your neighbor and say, God is good. God is good. Now, we know the old, the old return line to that, right? God is good all, all the time. time. There you go, all the time. Now, do we believe that? Do we believe that he is good all the time? Because if we did, we'd probably say it with a little bit more excitement rather than all the time. You know, all the time he's good. I'm just, he's so good. I'm getting tired of it, you know? I'm getting tired of, of, of his goodness all the time, every day, good, 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 good. No, we don't get tired of God's goodness because we're not psychopaths, Right? It's a goodness, here's the thing, how good is God? It's a goodness that you can always count on. God is always good, he is never not good. There's not a moment that God is not good. And you may say, well, you know what? You haven't lived my life lately. Go to the cancer treatments I've been going to. Look at the bank account and see that there's nothing in it still. Where is this good God in my life? He's right there. Good circumstances do not make God good. God is good regardless of our circumstances. You say, well that's easy to say when things are going well in your life. Things are not always going well in the preacher's life, contrary to popular belief. Sometimes things are going good in our lives, and sometimes we don't return the praise that we should, too. See, God is good and it's a goodness that I can count on. I love what it says in verse number 13. He says, I am certain That means I can count on this. David says, I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Now what he means by that land of the living there is not just the then to come, it's the here and now as well. That I will see God's goodness in the land of the living. Let's go back to that cancer treatment. Let's go back to that God not looking good in my life right now. Remember what David prayed for when he was on the run. He didn't pray for immediate deliverance. What did he pray for? He prayed for presence. God's presence with us through the valleys, God's presence with us even when we run from him, that we can't escape it, is what makes him good. It's an inescapable goodness. It's a goodness that cannot be overcome by whatever the enemy may throw our way. It is a goodness that we have to just get used to resting in as the children of God. God is good, and he is good all the time. When was the last time that you honestly took inventory of the evidence of God's goodness in your life? So we can count on God's goodness because we can count on God, and God is good. Let me say that one more time. We can count on God's goodness because you can count on God, and God is good. It is not that God does some good things. It is that God is good, altogether good. He is good personified. Goodness, it means the very best of things, not, that, not just that That is not just good, it's the best good. It's like you get tickets to the UK game, but the best good is that you get tickets to sit right next to Coach Cal on the bench where you can smell the sweat. That's the best good, right? That's the goodness of God. It's not just that I've got this good God, this heavenly father, but I am the child of the king. I am redeemed for eternity. I am eternally sealed by him that there is nothing that I need to fear. It's a goodness that I can also build my life upon. This is why David said, I just want to settle down and I want to gaze upon your beauty because your beauty is comprised of your goodness. It's a goodness that I can build my life on. He says, be strong in the passage and let your heart be courageous. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Because God is good, I can move on with my life. Because God is good, I can build my life upon his goodness and upon his promises. What are some of the promises that God has made to you that are not affected by the winds of change or the winds of the world? What are some promises that God has given you of his goodness that are not going to be affected by COVID-19? What are, some if, what are some evidences of God's goodness that will not be affected by the winner of the upcoming election? What are the evidences of God's goodness that are not affected by so, the social climate that we see ourselves in? Because God is still good in the midst of all of those things. All of these things that we see, the fighting, the strife, those are evidence of a broken, fallen world that walked away from a good God. But it didn't change God's goodness. Catch that. All of the things that we blame God for going through as evidence that he is not good are actually things that are happening because we walked away from a good God. It didn't change the fact that he's good. It's a goodness that I can build my life upon. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. And then the third thing, a goodness that is always perfectly on time. Look what it says in verse number 14. Wait for the Lord... There's that that line that we just looked at a second ago be strong and let your heart be courageous. And then it's sandwiched between another phrase wait for the Lord. One of the devices that scripture uses many times is that when it repeats things like that, it is for the purpose of making sure that we get it. If you missed it the first time, let me catch it, make sure you catch it the second time. This is what I would call a courage sandwich. I like sandwiches, I like them a lot, obviously. But sandwiched between waiting for the Lord is what comes with courage and our heart being restored. But it's sandwiched between a principle that we have to learn. Wait for the Lord. God is good. You can take courage in his goodness. But while you're waiting for his goodness, we'll probably learn some patience. We have to learn to keep our eyes fixed upon him. And that means looking beyond and around and looking at the things that we see. And that doesn't mean that we just, well, I'm just gonna ignore all the things that are taking place around me. No, we're not called to ignore. We're called to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. But our action and our ways of living should be fueled by this good God because if God is good, God's people need to reflect his goodness too. And we lose sight of his goodness. Guess what happens to us? We, see, we stop seeking to be good ourselves in him. And that is what an unbelieving world finds unbelievable when they look at his people. Why, if God is so good, are you just so not good? Well, let that sit for just a second. Why, if God that you serve is so good, why are you so settled on not being? God is good and it is a goodness that is always perfectly on time. David wrote the psalm with that kind of confidence because he had experienced it before. And as we close out this morning and go to invitation, I want to ask a question as we go into prayer. What about you? What kind of confidence do you have in God? If you're struggling right now in the dark days of the soul or the dog days of the soul, I invite you to come back to four things that David came back to. His salvation that is awesome. His presence that inspires all, that when we come to fully understand his presence and we come into his presence, we have no other recourse but to be awestruck by him. His beauty that just captivates us, that no matter what may be going on over here, we are still focused upon him, and we see everything through the filter of his beauty and his truth. And it's still, it's a sense of awe that is inspired by his goodness, that come what may, my God is good. Because he is good, I will seek to be good too. Our God is awesome, and he deserves our awe and wonder. With every head bowed this morning, please, if, if you're in here and eyes are closed, if you're worshiping with us virtually, if you could just consider yourself to be just in an attitude of prayer, just communing, talking with this awesome God. See, he saves, even though we don't deserve it, even considering the price that he paid to provide it, he saves. That's awesome. He stays even when no one else does, even when I wander away from him, even when I run, even when I hide, he's there. That's awesome. He's beautiful. He invites me to know him even after I set my eyes on lesser beauty, or I lust after things that are not near as beautiful as him, and, he get, and, and, and even when I'm too ignorant to desire him, he's still beautiful and he is good. He's better to me than I deserve. He gives me hope that I shouldn't have. He gives a life that I have no business living, and I have no business enjoying for eternity, and he is coming through at just the right time. Who couldn't be in awe of a God like this? This is our God. So the question this morning as we get ready to pray and close out is, do you need to be saved? Do you need to respond to verse number one? Is Jesus the light Of your salvation today. If you are not saved, let today be the day of salvation. He says, By grace are we saved through faith, and it's not of ourselves. It is a gift of a holy God, not of our works, lest any man should boast. If we put our faith and trust in Him, repent of our sins, He will save us. Do you need to be reminded that He's there? Maybe you're wandering around in the darkness and you're like, Man, I don't know where God's been. I'm saved, but man, it's been a long time since we've checked in with each other. He hasn't moved, He's still good. He hasn't walked away. Return to Him. And do you need to see His goodness? Wait on the Lord. In the seasons when we're tired in the seasons where it's tough, learn to wait on the Lord and you will see His goodness in this time. And in His full, ununfoldest plan. Heavenly Father, have your will and way in this invitation. and Move in this place this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. to the conclusion of this week's message. We pray that it has ministered to you and challenged you from the word of God. We would love to hear from you. If you would like to connect with us, you can go to www.gracewaylex.org, click on contact us, and we would love to have a discussion with you about your faith. Thank you. We'll talk to you again next week.